Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is the word of the Lord. We're going to look at this chapter beginning in chapter 6 here in just a moment and kind of give you a sweeping overview of the chapter. But before we do that, let me just give a little bit of an update of kind of how we see things progressing over the next weeks here. All of that certainly is contingent upon circumstances as as they arise. But we're hoping that uh, by the 1st of August, we can begin to put a few things back in place that we've had And our attempt is going to be to kind of gradually do that so that by fall we'll have a a bit of a semblance, we hope, of normality in our schedules and in our ministries. But the first part of August, our our plan is now, along with the elders, is to uh, begin to have children's worship time again, which will be, would be leaving now and going to their own time of worship upstairs. So we're, excuse me, let me, let me say that again children's worship time, it won't be upstairs. It will be probably, most likely, in the youth center so that we're able to stay distanced a bit. So that's one of the first pieces we're hoping to put back into place is allowing the children to be dismissed and worship at their own level um, as far as teaching concern in that particular time. But in all of that, I want to say, young people that are here, that the you that might have gone here right now, I just want to affirm you. Look at me, will you? All of you young people that would go to children's church, I want to, I want to really affirm you. I really believe that the adults have been better with you here. You've been watching over them very well. And they are much more attentive, and we're glad you're here. One of the, one of the things that has been good about this time, um, it doesn't mean we're going to keep it this way the whole time, but the multi-generational aspect of not being able to meet together. I, I noticed it, first of all, in some of the Zoom meetings that we had. It was, it was a joy to me to see families together in those Zoom meetings that we had on Wednesdays and Sunday nights, and the children participating in that. As we shared scripture, as we talked about prayer requests, they were interacting with us. We, those are good things. And so I know, as parents, maybe uh, you haven't been able to always uh, be as as settled maybe in the worship service at times because you're having to be concerned about children. But we want to say to you, we value children. We value them. We don't ever want to devalue them. And, and none of the things that we do are ever an attempt to do that. Um, we want to try to meet their needs at the level that they are, and some of the things that we do is for that reason. But but the multi-generational aspect of our congregation. One of the joys of pastoring this church is, for me, has been, we didn't have an option. We didn't have an option to segregate ourselves as a church. You know, we think of segregation oftentimes as racial segregation, but I think churches get segregated lots of ways. And one of the ways they get segregated is in worship kinds of styles, where we have one service here and one service here and different styles for different ages and different generations. 
We just, we had to do it together. We've had to do it together, and I think that's the way it ought to be done, together. And so, even though we're going to go back to some ministries, that, that does not in any way mean we don't value being together and doing it together. So, I want to just affirm all of you in that process, and we'll continue to keep you updated. We plan to kind of put that out with a video possibly this week, but we're having trouble with this for some reason. We don't know why for our email. Uh, people who service us with email, particularly group emails, are having trouble getting them to go out. So we wanted to get that word out to you. But now let's look at chapter 6. We want to move on in our walk through Romans, um, and we will do that. The other thing that I want to say this morning is I'm going to introduce chapter 6 to you and how it fits kind of in the overall view of, of, uh, of the flow of Romans, particularly 6 and 7. I'm going to kind of introduce them this morning. And then I'm going to have about four weeks where we will be away from Romans. Pastor Jason is going to take the next four weeks and has a series that he's going to share with you on Sunday mornings. Then we'll come back, Lord willing, to Romans the first week in August. But let me kind of introduce chapter 6. But in order to do that, in order to introduce chapter 6, I think it's important that we go back. And, and we kind of rehearse where we've been. We've been in this a long time, this journey through the book of Romans for several months now. And so it's important at times just to stop and kind of rehearse the flow of where we've been thus far. And particularly when you change chapters like we are here. Now, certainly those are artificial things that have been put on the scripture. When Paul wrote this, he didn't write chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. He wrote one letter. And individuals later broke it down so that we're able to find it. And it's helpful to be able to look up a verse because we have chapter and verse. And I think the people who did that did the best they could to try to, to divide it appropriately. But understand, that's not the way Paul wrote it. It was a letter Paul wrote. And so we need to keep that in mind. But let's look at the flow of that letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church for a bit. And we began back, obviously, in chapter 1. But as we came to verses 16 and 17, we said to you, and I believe it's true, this is really the theme of Romans. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is kind of an overarching theme of what Romans is about. And Paul wrote this, For I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And one of the things we said in chapter 1 was this was a message that Paul was heralding. He was heralding because it was such gloriously good news. That's what Paul was doing as he writes this letter to the Roman church. He's sharing wonderfully good news. But you know, there are people who sometimes read the book of Romans or they read the scriptures and they don't see it for the good news that it is. In fact, Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation hundreds of years ago that God used as a catalyst, when he read Romans, when he taught Romans, a heavier weight fell on him for a time particularly the word righteousness. Remember when we talked about that? That word righteousness, particularly the righteousness of God for, for Luther was like a weight on his shoulders. Even as he read this text in the beginning, 
as he looked at the righteousness of God, it, it just brought him under greater condemnation because he had it right. God is righteous, absolutely righteous. And in fact, one of the things Luther did in the, in the beginning when he was ministering before he'd come to see truly the gospel, he had a misunderstanding of what it was. And he felt like and would say and did write that in many ways he wished that he had not heard the gospel because it just brought him under greater condemnation. And what he meant by that was as As he looked at the Old Testament, it was bad enough, the righteousness of God. But then he comes to the New Testament, and and Jesus enters the picture, and he says things like, thou shalt not murder, yes, that's Old Testament. But then he goes on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, if you even hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. And you see, for, for Luther, that was like they took a couple more cinder blocks and laid them on him. The righteousness of God became even keener to him and sharper to him. And he fell under condemnation. And then, and then God opened his eyes to see it differently, to see it rightly, to see that the righteousness here in this text, the righteousness of God being revealed, is the righteousness which God provides for us, a righteousness outside of us, that Christ accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, alien righteousness that young people remember in chapel, that whole illustration. He who had no sin, he takes our sin, he gives us his goodness or his perfection. And Luther came to see that in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed and it's the righteousness that Christ accomplished in his life. And it, it opened up an understanding to Luther that dramatically changed his life and the course of history. And we live in the benefit of that now, as the gospel in many ways was rediscovered in those days. So that's what the theme of Romans is about, the gospel. A righteousness from God that is given to us as a gift by faith. And then, right after that, after he introduces the theme, then he goes to verse, six, verse 18 and tells you why we need that righteousness. Why we need it. And from chapter 1, verse 18, he goes on into chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, and then in chapter, or chapter 2, and then into chapter 3 as he comes down to these kinds of statements when he's summing things up about why we need that righteousness from God. And he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He just keeps sharing the need for a righteousness outside of us. We can't find it in us. It's not there. But there is one who promises to give it to us as a gift. And then we go all the way down into chapter 3 and verse 20. And this is where he kind of ends that section of showing our need. And because of our need, I forgot to say this, but in verse 18, as he starts this section, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
And that's the danger of that unrighteousness, that that wrath is there, ready to be revealed. And you see the weight of that there. But then he comes to the conclusion of that section, and he says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he shows the need. And then he comes back to the theme of Romans again in verse 21 of chapter 3. He says this, But now, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's the righteousness that Christ accomplished. We couldn't. If we could have fully fulfilled the law, we could have attained righteousness. But we didn't. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. He says that in chapter 3. Every one of us. But there is one who did fully fulfill the law. Jesus. And he accomplished again that righteousness that's been manifested among us. The righteousness that can be ours by faith. And that's exactly what it says in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that's the flow of Romans that we've been walking through. And then he comes to chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 4 and 5. And what he does in chapters 4 and 5 is basically writes things to help the Roman church to have assurance, assurance in this work of God. As they look to the righteousness of Christ, that they would have assurance of their justification, that they have been reconciled to God by this work, by this righteousness. He goes there to say things like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God in chapter 5 and verse 1. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we've also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so what he does in chapters 4 and 5 is just build assurance into the lives of those he's writing to. If they've looked to the righteousness of of Christ, if they've looked to that righteousness that he accomplished for them, outside of them. And then we come to chapter 6, and we want to look at that in a minute, but let me take you back to last week now. Just go right back to last week. Here we've been saying that this righteousness that so troubled Luther, the righteousness of God. He, he wasn't seeing it right. It wasn't the righteousness by which God is righteous. That, that is terrifying. By ourselves, in our sin, the righteousness by which, by which God is righteous, that, that Luther knew that well. He knew his sin. But then God steps into the picture and provides a righteousness outside of us. And that's the righteousness that it's talking about when it says... Now a righteousness has been manifested. That righteousness that Christ accomplished has been manifested. But don't just take my word for it. It's it's important. We've been talking for weeks about that righteousness outside of us. 
Last week, Paul just drilled it home one final time in chapter uh, 5. And I want you to go back to that again. It is critically important that you don't just take my word for that's the righteousness it's talking about here, but you see it in the scriptures. You see it there. The stakes of what I'm talking about are huge. They're enormous. Don't just take my word for it. Make sure that the scriptures say that. Does that that resonate with you? Don't let just somebody else tell you that's what it says, but make sure that's what it says. And that's why what we looked at last week is so important. It may seem to you as we are splitting hairs, but I guarantee you, when Luther stood against the church and held to that, he wasn't taking anybody else's word for it except God's. And so look at the text. I want you to go back to the text for a moment in verse 21, particularly. But it says this, So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness. Okay, you see that? That grace might also reign through righteousness. Again, the question is, what does it mean when it says righteousness? The reign of grace begins when we're justified by faith. And that reign continues over us until one day we are ushered into God's presence. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the reign of grace begins at the moment we're justified. Paul said, since therefore you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. Not a feeling of peace, but you have peace. There's a peace treaty has been signed. You're no longer at war with God. Justification is the beginning of that reign of grace, but it goes on to say more than just the reign of grace. It says the reign of grace through righteousness. Now, the question that you have to ask yourself, does that mean that this reign of grace allows us to live righteous lives? Is that what it means here? Now, there, we'll come and talk more about this reign of grace and some things that it produces, but here, right here in this text... Right here. Does that mean that the reign of grace comes to allow us to live righteous lives? And I said to you last week, no. The righteousness here, that it's talking about here specifically, the reign of grace through righteousness, I believe is the same righteousness that you find in the text beginning in verse 19. Look at that. It says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, the sin of Adam. We sinned in the sin of Adam. Sin was imputed to us. We've, we've talked about that. You can go back to the webpage and look at the messages. But then the second part of this, this is what you need to see. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made what? Righteous. I believe where it says this, the reign of grace through righteousness, the righteousness there is the same righteousness that it's talking about in verse 19. The righteousness that can be ours because of the obedience of the second Adam, the obedience of Christ, the work of Christ, his life, death, burial, and ultimate resurrection by the Father because he'd done it correctly and completely. 
and accomplished a righteousness outside of us. Now, that's important. I'm not, we're not just splitting hairs. It's important for multitudes of reasons that it is not our righteousness it's talking about here that even was assisted by God. I mean, his death allowed us to live lives of righteousness. Now, there, there's a truth in that, but here in this text, that's not what it's saying. Here he's talking about the foundation of our justification, which is the righteousness of Christ. That's the grounds by which we have access into his presence. It's the grounds by which we have peace with God. It's the grounds by which we can know that no longer is that wrath being revealed against us. It's the way I can say to you this morning that we can know that everything that comes to us for those who are in Christ is good. God's goodness and graciousness toward us. No longer is there anything of wrath in it from his hand. We can say all of that because it's based not on my righteousness, but on the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. Is that your hope this morning? Is that where you look when you're tempted to doubt your justification? Or question your justification? Question whether God really accepts you? Do you look inside of yourself and see how much righteousness there is there? Engage that. If you've done well this week, yes, he does. If you haven't, or do you look to the perfect righteousness of another as the grounds of your justification? It can be subtle where we look, but I'm telling you the only way that you can rest fully was in you know that when Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished, he meant that's what was finished. A righteousness has been accomplished by which those that are in Christ can be reconciled to God. Is that the grounds of your hope? It took me a while to get there in my Christian life. I told you early on I didn't have some of the things that I needed to have to help me to see that. I hope it's not the same for you. I hope that you look to Christ's righteousness as your hope. Now, let me say some more things here. And and then I'm going to also make a point about chapter 6. We're going to get there. Let me say this. The reign of grace. The reign of grace is more than just justification. But the grounds of the beginning of the reign of grace is the righteousness of Christ outside of us, imputed to us. In other words, his obedience, another way to say it, is seen as our obedience. Just as the disobedience of Adam was seen as our disobedience, so the obedience of Christ is seen as ours. And so he gives us his righteousness. And then the scripture goes on to say, not only are those who are justified, will ultimately also one day be glorified. It means the hope of all who are justified according to Romans, is that they will be glorified. That's what you find in chapter 8. Stay with me now. If you go to chapter 5, okay, and then we have 6 and 7 in the middle, just kind of act like they're not there for now, and then you go to chapter 8. What you jump from is Paul talking about being justified in chapter 5, justified by the righteousness of another, and then he goes to chapter 8 and talks about glorification there, and look at a couple of verses that 
you find in chapter 8. First, verse 30, it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. How did he justify them? On the basis of the righteousness of his son that they have put their faith in and their confidence in. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One day, he will glorify all. He will usher us into his presence. All those in Christ who've been justified, ultimately one day will be glorified. And, and all of that is the reign of grace. The whole span of all of that is the reign of grace over that. God begins a good work. He completes the word. He who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion. That's all the reign of grace. But again, the foundation of the reign of grace is the righteousness that we see in chapter 5, the righteousness that comes from the obedience of the Son. That's the grounds of our standing before God. And look, one further thing in chapter 5, before we leave there. It says this in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, grace begins its reign in justification and then it leads to eternal life glorification. How? There's only one way, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are no other gods. There are not a multiplicity of ways to get to heaven. According to Christianity, you can believe that if you want. I've said that before. But you can't call it Christianity. Because Christianity says, sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, by faith that is given to us, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is no other way, according to Paul and according to Scripture. So, now, now, keep all that in your mind, and we're going to go to chapter 6. We want to look at chapter 6. What in the world are chapters 6 and 7 about? If we could have cut them out in a sense and still had a flow of thought from chapter 5 to chapter 8, why did Paul insert chapters 6 and 7? Now, they weren't chapters to him, but they were thoughts that he had. Remember a while back we used the word parenthesis? Some of you remember that. Well, Paul's doing it again. It's a parenthesis in his thought. In other words, Paul is going along and he's sharing the gospel. He's building assurance into the Roman people. And then all of a sudden, he takes a divergence with a parenthesis. And that's what chapter 6 and chapter 7 are. And what we talked about before, what the way Paul taught is he would, he would teach something. And then, we don't know, maybe these were actual questions that were raised or he heard about were raised in the church. Or else it was just kind of a, a thing that rose in Paul's mind thinking that's probably the way they were thinking. And so he addresses two things. He addresses two things in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And what he addresses is if if it's of grace, if it's the righteousness that he accomplished, it's by faith, then why don't we just go on sinning that grace may abound? In fact, he earlier said, um, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, the question they have is, if, if grace is grace, 
And why not do more of it? Because it makes God look better. Why not sin more? Why not sin more? That's the question that was raising up, particularly in the Jewish people. And so they had a question about it. Now, here's the point I want to make about chapter 6. One person has said it this way, that true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always, always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. It always has the possibility of that charge being brought against it. If you've, if you've preached the gospel correctly, a very good test of that, one person would say, is to see if these kind of questions are being asked. Are they being raised? Now, they're being raised by people who don't fully understand what Paul's saying, and that's what he does in chapter 6 and 7, is try to correct it. But if you truly preach the gospel, those questions are going to come. In other words, if, if it's by faith, through grace, then it doesn't matter if we sin. In fact, sin actually makes grace look better and bigger and grander. That was the thing that's being raised in chapter 6. That's the question that is troubling the people now. It's the question that Paul is addressing. Now, here's what I want you to see. If you don't get anything else I say today as I introduce chapter 6, get this, because it goes back to show the glory of the gospel. The only way people would ask the question of chapter 6 is if the righteousness that we talked about in chapter 5 is, in fact, the righteousness of Christ and not a righteousness in us. Does that make sense? The only reason they would ask that question is if the righteousness we're talking about here is, in fact, an alien righteousness outside of us that's accomplished by Christ and his obedience and given to us by faith. Because if it were not that, if it, in fact, were like this, that, yes, and and there are people who believe this, that, yes, Christ needs to die, but then we need to cooperate with that death, produce righteousness in our lives that God looks down on and says, okay, you've cooperated enough with the grace And you are righteous enough now to be declared righteous and ultimately be glorified. Now, the question here would be foolish to ask if that is in fact what Paul was saying. In other words, you need Christ, but then you've got to add to it. You've got to produce a righteousness in yourself to get there. Does that make sense? You see that? You wouldn't ask the question, shall we go on sinning? If you thought that you're sinning, was not producing the righteousness that you needed to be accepted, you'd never ask that question. That make sense? You just wouldn't ask it. It wouldn't come to your mind. Because it would be antithetical to what you believed. You believe that it's actually a righteousness in me. And so if you sin, that's not producing a righteousness in me. And if it's not producing a righteousness in me, I'm not going to be accepted by God. The only reason you would ever ask this question is if, in fact, the righteousness that's talked about in chapter 5 is, in fact, an alien righteousness outside of ourselves that is given to us by faith. You wouldn't say. Doesn't matter how we live, then. You wouldn't say that. 
Because it does matter how you live if you believe that, in fact, is an inherent righteousness inside of you. Whether God helps you to get it or not, doesn't matter. But if it's something inherently within you, you would not ask that question. And you see, that's why if you truly preach the gospel, that's the question that's going to come. And what I want to say to you this morning is what we're going to look at in chapter 6 and chapter 7 is Paul's answer to that. And his answer is very quickly. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. By no means. And really what he's saying there is you you just aren't seeing it correctly. You aren't seeing what happened when you put your faith in Christ, when you were united with Christ in that way. And we'll break it down. We'll talk about it. You'll have to wait till that comes in. What I would say to you, particularly as we walk through Romans, we're trying to be careful to lay, out, lay it out carefully. And, and one of the hardest things for me as a, as a pastor is that I share these things, but I don't always get all the questions that you may have. And so I want to say to you, I've had people call me as I've walked through this series to, to try to specifically explain what I meant by something I said. I welcome that because it's so important that you see this, that you aren't deceived, and, and that you see the argument that Paul is making in all of this. It is the grounds of our hope. So there's two things now in this parenthesis that we talked about, two things that Paul's going to answer. We're not going to do it today. I'm just going to introduce. The first one is he, he says in chapter 6, if you ask that question, you are not understanding your union with Christ. You're not understanding how you are united with Christ when you put your faith in him. Just as you were united in Adam, in his sin, you participated in his sin, you are united in Christ as you look to him and, and for that righteousness to be given to you. And you need to understand, Paul would say, you just need to understand your union with Christ better. And that's what we'll talk about. That's what we'll talk about in chapter 6, our union with Christ A second thing that we will talk about is you're not understanding the reign of Christ. In this particular text in chapter 5, he talked about the reign of grace in our lives. And again, the the reason someone would ask a question like that is you're not seeing that reign of grace over your life. That at one point there was a reign of sin over you, now there's a reign of grace. And to see those two things and how antithetical and... how much of a opposite they are, what's the word, antithetical, right? Okay, antithetical, they are to each other. They, they are diametrically opposed. So that's the second thing. You're understanding the reign of Christ. And thirdly, you're misunderstanding the second thing that he talks about in verse 2, where he says, by... By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin? And what he will do in chapter 6 is talk about what it means to have died to sin, past tense. It's a past tense statement. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin. doesn't mean we won't at times sin and still struggle with sin at times. So when he talks about died to sin, we'll explain what that means, what he means there. But that's the argument that Paul comes back with. You, you just aren't seeing those things. And so he takes chapter 6 to show that. And then in chapter 7, the problem that we'll come to is a problem of the law. The second problem that was, was 
struggling in the minds of, of, of the Roman church and particularly Jewish people is, where's the place of the law? Was it unnecessary? Is there no purpose in it? Why the law if we can't be saved by it? And we're not under it anymore. What does that mean? In, in verse 7 of chapter, um, of chapter 7, he says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. And he deals with the, the, the issue of the law. So in chapter 6 and 7, it's a parenthesis that we're going to look at. And I think it will be very helpful to us. It will help us to understand how sin is dealt with as we walk with God, as we live out this Christian life. Let me say this one thing, and then I want to bring this to a close this morning. Um, It's important for us to understand that salvation is is a, a package thing. It begins at justification, and if we've been justified, we will get to the end. We will be glorified. But it's really salvation, when the Bible talks about it, is the reign of grace in justification, sanctification, that process by which we become more and more like Christ, and ultimately, ultimately glorified. So it's justification, sanctification, glorification. One way to say it is, in justification, we're saved from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, we're saved from the power of sin. And thirdly, in glorification, we're saved from the presence of sin. It's removed completely. It's gone. There'll be no sin in heaven. Even the impulse to sin will be gone when we're glorified. But that whole package is really what happens as the reign of grace begins in our life. And if it's begun, it will be finished. But it it moves through all of those stages. And really what chapters 6 and 7 are talking particularly about is that process of the Holy Spirit entering into our lives and that process of sanctification, of of the fact that we are not saved just from the penalty of sin and justification, but from the power of sin. There's, There's an ability now to resist sin in ways that those who are not justified cannot do. And Paul talks about that. He'll deal with that in these particular um, chapters. He'll talk about the place of sin in the life of a believer and aspects of that. So those are the things that we have to look forward to, the things that we will unpack in these next weeks as we come together beginning the first part of August. But the real question is, None of it's going to make any sense, really, except the reign of grace has begun in your life. All the things I said about assurance and the fact that if, if this one has happened, this one will happen, if God's begun a work, he'll finish it, is, is predicated on the fact that he's begun it. It's predicated on the fact that the reign of grace has begun in your life, that you're no longer under the reign of sin, You no longer are in Adam, but you now are in Christ. That's the real issue. That's where you must begin. In fact, the only sin, the only sin that you can successfully conquer in your life and come against is a forgiven sin. The way the the songwriter would say, the only sin that you can successfully defeat in your life is a canceled sin. The songwriter said he breaks the power of canceled sin. 
You see, that's why it's so important, and Paul spent so much time making sure we knew our status if we're justified. He knew we have peace with God. He knew we have access into his presence and into his grace in which we now stand. You will not successfully come against sin in your life and battle sin in your life, except you can rest on the confident foundation that the reign of grace in righteousness is yours. That the righteousness of Christ is your hope. The righteousness of another. And if you're in Christ, God sees you as righteous, even as you battle to root out unrighteousness in your life. It's why the writer of the Hebrews said, by one sacrifice, by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, we have been made perfect forever even as we are being sanctified or even as we are being made perfect. We've been made perfect forever. And because we've been made perfect forever, we can look into our lives and acknowledge our imperfection, acknowledge our sin, confess our sin, and let God root it out of our lives. But that's not the basis of our justification, the rooting it out. That's just the process of the reign of grace over us. What God does, what he does as he begins in justification. Well, I'd like the worship team to come. We're going to sing together and close this morning. And uh, it's important, I think, to, to sing songs like this, particularly as we look at chapter 6 and 7, as we look at sin in our lives and and see how we can come against it, how we can battle against it as believers. We need to know the confidence of what the songwriter writes about. Let's sing it this morning. Let's stand. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his life. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. Will not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. 
but by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. Thank you for coming to worship with us. Again, this morning, if you'd like to visit, we know many of you might want to do that. We just hope that you'll move all the way out into the parking lot, allowing space for others who may want to be socially distant to be able to get out of the building and out to their vehicles. So we'll dismiss you again by Rose this morning. We're grateful that you're here.